thoughts, his words, his heart, right there, just a few inches away. I can carry it with me everywhere I go, read it whenever I want. When we open the Bible, what do we see? We see God himself in this book. We meet him here or we don't meet him, not with any hope of friendship. Reading the Bible is one of the most important things we can ever do. It's more valuable than anything we own, sweeter than anything we have ever eaten. It is literally more important than breathing. But that's not always what we see and feel when we open our Bible. Our weak, tired, distracted eyes look, and all we see is a lifeless, boring portrait on the wall. But it's not a portrait, it's a window. It doesn't hang lifeless in an old frame on the wall. It breaks through the wall into another world, the real world, the lasting world, the better world. And through this window shines a divine light that changes everything around us. We all know that the road to knowing God is not easy. Discipline and resolve are important, but they can carry you only so far. A few days, a week, maybe a month. For the long run, we need something stronger, more compelling than discipline and resolve. There are too many traps along the path, too many hurdles. At the root, the reason we don't read the Bible is that we don't want to read the Bible. We don't see joy, peace, and life when we see that leather binding on our shelf. We see a wall, not a window. The boring portrait, not the never-ending beauty beyond. So we put it off, leave it shut, and move on. We stay in bed, and we miss the miracle. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, loves to speak light into hearts and minds. God wrote a book, and with his book, these words in front of us, he wakens our dead, bored souls he frees us from bondage to sin, from desires that rob us of life. He comforts the depressed, inspires the discouraged, guides the confused. He empowers us to make our lives count for his cause in the world. He satisfies us completely and forever with words, his words. So, will I read my Bible tomorrow? Where else would I go? How else will I know Him? How else will I prepare myself to enjoy Him forever?
Yes, I'll spend the rest of my life looking out of this window, watching, waiting for another sight of him, another miracle, another glimpse of my God. This book is the most important book that exists in the world. And there are a lot of us here at Keystone who are at Keystone because you know that Keystone is a place that values this book. And I want to say that's not by accident. If you look at Keystone EFCA's um, statement, of, uh, statement of faith, go ahead and just click through the slides. Keystone, EFC, uh, Keystone is part of the EFCA. Our statement of faith uh, says this. We believe, and I'll read it from here. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As, verbally, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in original languages, the complete revelation of his will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Biblical authority and power is one of Keystone's highest core values. And since I'm a pastor who only preaches uh, on a handful of occasions, I have the opportunity uh, and luxury to only really choose texts and topics that are most passionate to me and what I think are most important uh, for the church. And today is one of those messages. When I was leaving youth ministry in 2014, I had just been a youth pastor for eight years. And in those eight years, I taught a lot of lessons. But there were a handful of lessons that in some ways were like threads that wove themselves through every lesson. And so at the very conclusion of my youth ministry series, I taught a series that I called Greatest Hits, Brandon Fisher's Greatest Hits, kind of like a Greatest Hits album. And what that was, was six lessons, six tracks, that the, the central riff was uh, looped, sampled, remixed. Didn't matter what lesson I was teaching in youth ministry, somehow these six central songs ended up getting sung throughout it. And this morning, um, we're going to sing one of those songs, or I'm going to sing one of those songs today. And the song is this, God speaks and his word is sweet. God speaks and his word is sweet. Sweet. And so I want to uh, actually try to make that point a little sticky, pun intended, uh, and I'm going to have the ushers come through and pass out uh, some hard candy. Uh, it is honey-flavored candy. Uh, it is a youth ministry trick where you connect the lesson with something uh, as well as giving people something to uh, hold. Um, and so my warning for you, if, if you're intermittent fasting or on a keto thing or if, uh, if, if corn syrup is not really your cup of tea, it's, it says honey, but let's be honest, it's probably not. You can feel free to just imagine something sweet, but for those of you who are able and willing, uh, my encouragement for you, as you taste the candy. I want you to be reminded of the verse that's on the screen. How sweet 
are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How sweet are the words of God, sweeter than honey to my taste. Now, I, even though I've taught on this topic several times before, I've never actually tackled what is probably the pinnacle of texts dealing with the beauty and sweetness of the word of God. Psalm 119. And there's a handful of reasons. It's, it is the longest book in your Bible at 176, or I'm sorry, longest chapter in your Bible. 176 verses makes it longer than actually over 20 other books of the Bible. So it's incredible breadth is one reason that I've avoided it. I think I've only ever really quoted uh, one line, uh, Psalm 119, 105. Does anybody know that one? Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Or if you're Amy Grant, and thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Uh, King James and Amy like to uh, mix, mix things up a little bit for us. But one verse out of 176 doesn't make me a pro. And I think the breadth was a little scary. And honestly, the depth of it became scarier as I got into it. And to give you an idea, I want to show you a handful of what I would say Christian greats, what they have to say about Psalm 119 that gives me a little pause this morning. One comes from Charles Spurgeon. He says this, this great psalm is a book in itself. Instead of being one among many psalms, it is worthy to be set forth by itself as a poem of surpassing excellence. Those who have never studied it may pronounce it commonplace or complain of its repetitions. But to the thoughtful student, it is like the great deep, full, so as never to be measured, and varied, so as never to weary the eye. St. Augustine says something similar. In fact, um, in the beginning to his exposition of all of the, the Psalms, when it comes to Psalm 119, he begins by saying this, with the Lord's gracious help, I have expounded as best I could all the other Psalms contained in the book, which as we all know, uh, by the church's customs called the Psalter. I have done so partly in sermons to people and partly by dictation, but always I put off the exposition of Psalm 119, not so much because of its formidable length, but because of its profundity, its depth, which few can fathom. My brethren took it badly that this psalm alone should lack in exposition in our insignificant writings, and as it too belongs to the collection of psalms. And as they pressed me insistently to discharge this debt, but for a long time I did not yield to their requests, even to their commands, because every time I tried to think about it, it always seemed far beyond the powers of my mind. I don't know if you know St. Augustine, but anytime he says something that is far beyond his mind, I think, oh, what hope do I have in order to explain something that even St. Augustine could not understand? The last one comes from a French theologian, Armand de Mestrel. He says this, the psalm is a prolonged meditation upon the excellence of the word of God, upon its effect and the strength and happiness which it gives to a man in every position. These reflections are interspersed with petitions in which the psalmist, deeply feeling his natural infirmity, explores the help of God for assistance 
to walk in the way mapped out for him in the divine oracles. In order to be able to understand and to enjoy this remarkable psalm, and that we may not be repelled by its length and by its repetitions, we must have had, in some measure at least, the same experience as its author. And, like him, have learned to love and practice the sacred word. It's my hope this morning that we as a church would rally again and remember that God speaks and his word is sweet this morning. And to do so out of Psalm 119, I'm driven to remember that it's only God who opens our eyes to see. And so I want to invite you to be praying with me um, that God would be opening your eyes to your heart and mind to see the beauty of his word this morning. And so would you pray with me? Father, we do love that we have a book that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And you've given us minds to comprehend and hearts to feel it and hands to reflect it. Lord, you say that your word is living and active, that it accomplishes all of your purposes. And Lord, we see in your word that when you say to darkness, be light, the darkness obeys your voice. When you tell a dead man to rise from the grave, he rises and obeys your word. When the storm comes and you say to that storm, be still, it stills. Lord, your word is beyond anything we can imagine. Grass withers, flowers fade, but Lord, your word endures forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but Lord, your word will not pass away. Lord, help us to see your words as sweet this morning. Help us to see your word as milk like newborn babies craving it to become strong. Let us be able to confess this morning that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Open your eyes, open our eyes to your glory this morning that we might know you. Reveal yourself to us by your word. Equip us this morning Let it teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Lord, guide us by your spirit into all truth this morning. By the power of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you want to, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 119. At 176 verses, I did think about reading the whole thing. It would take me 14 minutes, just in case you're wondering. Uh, opted not to do that. Um, the, uh, Psalm 176 is an acrostic poem. 176 verses are broken into 22 stanzas, each stanza having eight verses. Each stanza corresponding to a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with, in fact, the title might be in there, Aleph, and then eight verses, and then Bet, and then eight verses, and then Gimel. Hebrews do A, B, Gs. I know we're accustomed to our A, B, Cs. Um, And so I just thought I'm going to stick with just the first three. So we'll read the first 24 verses together this morning. 
Verse 1, joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. How can a young man stay pure? By obeying your word. I have tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I have recited aloud all the regulations you've given us. I have rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and I will not forget your word. Be good to your servant that I may live and obey your word. Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. I am only a foreigner in the land. Don't hide your commands from me. I am always overwhelmed with the desire for your regulations. You rebuke the arrogant. Those who wander from your commands are cursed. Don't let them scorn and insult me, for I have obeyed your laws. Even princes sit and speak against me, but I will meditate on your decrees. Your laws please me. They give me good advice. So to kind of guide our discussion this morning, I'm going to ask two questions and let the psalmist answer those two questions for us. And the first is this. What did the psalmist believe about the scriptures? What did the psalmist believe? What were the foundations that as he approached the scriptures ended up informing all other aspects of his life? And so to do that, let's just look at the first three verses. The first three verses stand unique from the rest. of Most of the psalm is a prayer to God and these three verses in my sight kind of set the stage for it. And so let me read them again. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. He's making a statement that ends up informing his desires, his petitions, his cries throughout the rest of the psalm. And what is it? Joyful are people who follow the law of the Lord. That is an underlying premise that will shape everything else for him. You might have a translation that says blessed or happy. Happy people obey the word of God. In some ways, I might say, the path to joy is paved by the word of God. The path to joy is paved by the word of God. And that simple statement ends up shaping or challenging maybe ways that we look at rules and regulations. Because what does the psalmist say in verse 4? God, you've charged me to keep all your commandments. And we're thinking, 
Yeah, that's what gods do. That's what people in authorities do. They charge people to obey. They create rules, and then they charge people under them to obey them. And then the psalmist, being informed by those first three verses, responds in verse 5 by saying what? Oh, that my actions would constantly, consistently reflect your decrees. I don't know about you, but I've come across rules and regulations that I don't respond to like the psalmist does when he talks about the word of the Lord. We all have rules that we have to follow. You've got authorities in your life. For those of you who are kids, you've got parents. You might have teachers. For those of you who are older, you might have bosses. For everyone, you have a government. And depending upon your view of government, in fact, I would say regardless of your view of government, there are rules and regulations that you follow that you just shake your head at and think that is the silliest, stupidest thing I have to follow. Kids, you know, your parents create rules and in your mind, they make zero sense. And your bosses at work, they have rules and regulations. OSHA has rules and regulations that you have to follow. And a lot of us would say, that's so stupid. It's such a hassle. It doesn't make my life better to follow these rules. None of us are saying like the psalmist in verse 5, oh, that I might follow these rules consistently all the days of my life. No, because when we, we see rules that don't make sense, we don't respect those rules. We certainly don't love them like the psalmist loves God's law. In fact, we might despise them. We might mock them. We might just say that they don't matter. We might not follow them. But the psalmist loves the word over and over and over and over again. He says he loves the law and he loves the law because he knows that these laws are God's laws. That these rules aren't arbitrary rules, but these rules flow from the mouth of a God who knows him, loves him, has his best interest in mind. And so he puts his trust in God's word and desires to obey it. Now, as, as we start talking about the goodness of the law and how good it is that the path to joy is paved by the word of God, there's a lot of people who might be familiar with Keystone's theology that might start to feel a little uncomfortable as we start talking about the, the law. For, for a keystone church like us that is Bible-saturated, that's gospel-centered, we are not law people. We are grace people, yeah? Yeah, we are grace people. We know without any doubt that we are saved not by obeying the law, but by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that blamelessness cannot be achieved through discipline and effort to follow the word of the Lord. Instead, we believe that Jesus Christ was the only person who was blameless. That he alone followed the law perfectly and then imputes his righteousness onto us when we put our faith in him. That Jesus Christ actually died to bear the wrath of God directed towards us. He died in our place for our sin, our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. He deals with it all so that we might come into the presence of God, not by works of the law, but by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so all of this law talk, this psalmist over here talking about how much he loves the law, you think, well, that's, that, that's not for us. That's not, 
That's not a keystone thing. That was an Old Testament thing. That was what they did before Jesus. I want to say that God does not dispense of his word the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason is that there's a difference between obeying the law and relying on the law. There's a difference between obeying the law and relying on the law. If we would read all of Psalm 119, it'd become very clear that this psalmist does not rely on the law for his salvation. Again and again and again, he cries out for salvation that he knows only comes from the Lord. He cries out for mercy and grace. He knows that he is not the blameless man in verse 1. He is not a man of integrity. In fact, if you look at the very last verse in Psalm 119, what does he say? Lord, I have gone astray. (laughs) Don't give up on me. The psalmist is very aware of his sin. He is not relying on the law for his salvation. So why is he striving to obey? He's striving to obey because the path to joy is paved by the word of God. He believes that his best life now is found in obedience. That the God who created all things also created the best way for it to function and his desire is to walk along that path. He does not see the instructions of the Lord as restrictions keeping him from his joy as if the joy was over here and there is now this law that is keeping me from entering into joy He sees the law itself as an invitation for us to walk in God's ways. And as we walk in God's ways, we experience the joy that God created us to walk in. And so I I do want to say, there's a difference between obeying and relying. As believers, we do not rely on the law of the Lord for salvation. We rely and rest in grace. But like the psalmist, we should still strive to walk along the path that God has marked out for us. Now, how should these beliefs of the psalmist shape, how did they shape his life and how should they shape our lives? I only have one point for us this morning and I'll, I have to provide a caveat to it. I only have one point for us. As a church, we should know and desire to know, be desperate to know God's word. As a church, we should know God's word. And so my takeaway for us at the very end is just going to be read the word. And yet I I feel compelled to, to say that spiritual maturity is not marked by knowledge. This psalmist is crying out lord teach me help me understand i've stored your word in my heart help me to know it teach me more give me insight let my eyes see the wondrous things you've done over and over again he's crying out so he might know it and i'm going to say spiritual maturity is not marked by knowledge some of you know this there are many wise fools there are many people who know their scriptures inside and out who we would look at and who they themselves may confess that they have no faith. 
as you look at the New Testament, who were the people who knew their Bibles the best? The Pharisees. And who killed Jesus? The Pharisees. Yeah, it's very possible to know the scriptures really well and totally miss the point. And yet, I don't know that it's possible for us to love and obey faithfully the things that we don't know. I don't know that you can love what you don't know. I don't know that you can faithfully obey what you don't know. And so my first step for us this morning is to challenge us to know God's word. Um, There's an article that came out, I think it was 2015. Um, Al Mohler uh, wrote this article, and I'd love for you to take a look at it. He says this, While America's evangelical Christians are rightly concerned about the secular worldview's rejection of biblical Christianity, we ought to give some urgent attention to a problem much closer to home. Biblical illiteracy in the church. This scandalous problem is our own and it's up to us to fix it. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Castelli put the problem squarely. America's, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Fewer than half of adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't name, uh, can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. No wonder people break the commandments all the time. They don't know what they are, said George Barna, president of the firm. The bottom line, increasingly, America is, a biblically, is biblically illiterate. Now, I would say biblical literacy is not the point of Christianity. We would all agree to that. But I would say that knowing the scriptures is a critical part to walking on a path of joy marked by his word. And so this morning, I want us to investigate a little bit more about what the psalmist, how the psalmist's understanding of the word ended up shaping his view and actions with the word. So let's go uh, looking at verses uh, 11 through uh, 9 through uh, the end. Of. It's clear from the psalm that the psalmist knows the word. If we were to read the whole psalm over and over again, he would boast in some ways about how he stored the word in his heart. Verse 11. Verse 13 says that he recites all of the regulations of the Lord. 14.15 says that he will. He promises to study it. He promises to never forget it. Over and over and over again, he knows the word. And we don't know who the author is. Uh, some older commentaries believe that it was King David. And if it was King David, then one of the regulations for kings was to read and write his own law, a copy of God's law given to Moses. And so if this is David, I know for a fact that this man knew all of the Old Testament scriptures. He would have been forced to write them all down. He knows them. And I would say even more than that, he desires to know them more. 
the third stanza. This section reveals just how desperate he is. You've got the desperation and, oh, that I might follow your law. I'm a sojourner in this land. Lord, don't hide your commands from me. Open my eyes to see, verse 18. Verse 19, don't hide your commands. I'm overwhelmed with a desire for your regulation in verse 20. You get a sense that the psalmist is desperate to know God's word. He knows it and he's desperate to know it. The question is, is is that how we as a church feel? I want us as Keystone Church to be known as a church that knows the word and is desperate to know the word. And I know, like I said at the very beginning, that a lot of us are here because we believe and rest assured that every Sunday we are going to hear a message from the word of God. And that to you is, that's great. And I want to say, if Sunday morning is the only time that you're investing time in the word, that you are shooting yourself in the heart. The psalmist would say, you're missing out on the joy of knowing the Lord. And so this morning, I want to challenge us to know the word. Now, A biblical illiteracy survey I don't think is going to fly well here. I think that we as a church would probably perform better than the average uh, American church. I don't know if that's boastful or not, but it'd be interesting to find out. I don't know how to do it. To know whether or not Keystone does know the word. And I think one of the problems that would lead us to not know the word is, well, we don't read it. And so I might ask, how many people in here read the word and base it on that? But if those who just raised their hand and said, yeah, Brandon, I read the word, I don't know that I could honestly assess whether or not you were fluent in the scriptures. And what I mean by that is not necessarily all approaches to reading the scriptures are equally valuable. Uh, Jen Wilkin uh, gave a, a, a seminar that I heard uh, where she exposed, I forget, there were six or seven ways that she, and I'll confess, I have approached the scriptures where I read them, I wanted to know them, but I read them in such a way that it wasn't necessarily helpful in letting me know the word. And so I want to share uh, those with you. The first is this. He called it, or I call it, the medicine cabinet approach to the scriptures. The medicine a cabinet approach. If you've got a problem, the Bible's got a verse for you. The Bible's got a verse for you. You feeling weak out there? I've got a verse for you. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through the Lord God who gives me strength. Ladies, you feeling tired out there? Moms, you feeling Dads, you feeling tired out there? I've got a verse for you. Matthew, come to me. Jesus, come to me. All you are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And I say, that's what you need. You need rest. Feeling anxious? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Prosper me. That's just what I need. So if you've got a problem, you go to the scriptures, you look for it. Ladies, you feeling ugly? Having a bad day? Honey, just wash your face. Turn to Psalm 139. 
and remind yourself you were fearfully and wonderfully made. Guys, you feeling ugly out there? The same verse applies to you. I know we often say that it's just a, a ladies' verse, but guys, you were fearfully and wonderfully created too. And here's the, what's the problem with the medicine cabinet approach? We only go to the scriptures looking to make us feel better. And so we only search the scriptures looking for the verses that make me feel better. And so we either ignore or dismiss sections of the Bible that don't make us feel good. But what if the Bible is not supposed to make you feel good? There are sections of the scripture that reveal something that's going to hurt Correction, discipline, rebuke. That doesn't feel good, but it's good for you. And so if our approach to the scriptures is just to be like a pill pusher, where we're suggesting here's a little nugget of truth that might brighten your day, I I feel like that might not be the best way to approach the scriptures, and I'm so guilty of doing just that. The second approach I'll call the blindfolded dartboard approach, where you throw a dart, you, you flop open your Bible, and if, if, if somehow you're thinking that the Holy Spirit is going to like take you to exactly where you need to be. And so one morning you might read a little section from Mark. Another morning you open it up and, oh, you're in Joshua. Another one you are in Daniel. And you do this. You're faithful in looking at scriptures day in, day out. Like a little, just a little nugget, a little paragraph here. And then I'm going to bounce over here. And then one here. And then one here. And then one here. What's the problem with the dartboard approach to trying to know the scriptures? Imagine if you tried to do that with your algebra book. The Bible is a book. I know that it's got lots of other books in it, but the book is meant to be read like a book. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if you want to know the the storyline and not just parts of the story, you have to know the whole story. If you read the Bible like an algebra book, or if you read your algebra book, like some of you read the Bible, at the end of the school year, you wouldn't necessarily understand algebra because you've only gotten these little parts. And in order to understand this part of algebra, actually, you should have probably learned this part. And so for us to know the scriptures, I think it's more important not to just randomly address it, but to have a plan. The, the third one that I'll draw your attention to, she had several more, but the third one I'll say is the whisper down the lane approach to the scriptures or uh, depending upon where you grew up, telephone. You remember the kid, kid's game, telephone, or whisper down the lane. You have one person who whispers something in somebody's ear, uh, they hear it, and then they pass it on to the next person, and that person hears and then passes it on. And at the end, uh, the message that the person says is so far away from what the original person had to say. And, and it's, it's a fun kid's game because the person at the very end typically has a very ridiculous statement to make. Uh, it's not as funny, though, when we use that approach to know the scriptures. And I'm so guilty of this because I, I can listen, from, listen to a, a sermon from Matt Chandler. And Matt Chandler is quoting Tim Keller. And Tim Keller is actually quoting Ed Clowney. And Ed Clowney is quoting John Calvin. And John Calvin's quoting St. Augustine. And Augustine is quoting the Apostle Paul. And over this span, now I trust all of those men But I have access to the actual word of God itself. I have access to the original. What's the problem with the whisper down the lane method is that we might end up realizing that I don't know what the Bible says. I only know what someone else says about the Bible. For us at Keister, I only know what Pastor Keith says about the Bible. I let him be the teacher. 
I would say, God has given you his Holy Spirit that you might know the scriptures. And so if you constantly are reading other commentaries, you'll realize that there are a lot of smart people who differ on their takes of what the Bible actually says. And the way that you can figure it out is for you to go to the text yourself. You've got it. Maybe I suggest maybe a different view of looking at the scriptures. Rather than coming to the scriptures like we would a checking account where I stick in my ATM card and receive some sort of allowance for the day, something to get me through the day. What if we looked at the scriptures more like a savings account where every day I invest into that account. Every day I'm reading the scriptures and even if I don't get any return on my investment from today, I know that I'm making an investment that will have a reward in the future. That when the time comes, I will have stored up in my heart the words of God that I might not sin against him. And so I want to give um, I want to give three um, statements or address three different types of people as we close. First of all, share a word to those of you who might be Bible skeptics, those who, who either disdain the Bible or are disinterested in the Bible. You're not quite sure that it is God's word, that God speaks. For you, it might be an old book. It might be a, a, a book of collections of myths. And some parts might be true, some parts might not be true. You're not ready to say that the Bible is God speaking. And I want to say, my suggestion for you, read it. Read the Bible yourself. Skeptics are very smart people. And skeptics, I think you can read the Bible and figure it out for yourself. One of the things that uh, is disconcerting is I I listen to podcasts with non-Christians and they will disparage the Bible and then they'll they'll quote a portion of it and it's obvious that they're not quoting it correctly. And or maybe it's just totally wrong. And I think, that's not fair. It's not fair that you would disparage it or disdain it if you don't even know it. And I think as skeptics, you owe it to yourself in order to really discount the Bible is to read it yourself. Read it yourself. And we're in a world of fake news and false testimony and it's it's hard to figure out what's really what. Did they really say that? Is that what they said? Is that what they meant? Is that why it's important? I think what we do is we read it for ourselves. A second group of people, for those of you who might be Bible beginners, you know that God speaks, but you haven't necessarily tasted that it's sweet yet. And so it's hard. It might feel more like a duty than a delight to read the word. My encouragement for you is this. Uh, At 22 years old, um, young Brandon Fisher uh, had just graduated college and he was entering into membership at Keystone. One of the membership steps is that you end up meeting uh, with the elders. They ask you a couple questions and then they open it up and uh, I was able to ask a couple questions. And the question I asked Pastor Keith was this. Pastor Keith, how did you get to know so much of the Bible? And I assumed that his answer was going to be, well, Brendan, I went to LBC and I went to uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's a seminary, uh, four years Bible, four years seminary. And, you know, after eight years, I I know my Bible. And he didn't say education. He said, Brendan, I've been reading the word for decades and teaching 
the word. And every week I gain a little bit more, a little bit more. Up to that point, 22-year-old Brandon had not read the scriptures in its entirety. I'd been a Christian for a decade, but I've not read the entire Bible. And I said, okay, this is when it begins. And so from that point on, I started reading the Bible through, beginning to end, wanting to know the full scope of the scriptures. And so my encouragement for those of you who might be young Bible beginners is you can do it. Uh, There's a, a little line from Gregory the Great, He says this, Scripture is like a river again, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. And so it doesn't matter what type of animal you are, a lamb or an elephant, there is room for you in the Scriptures to find your way through it. I would guess that we are a far more educated people than maybe hundreds of years ago. We are literate people. I think we can approach the word. And it might not seem as daunting as you might imagine. Any guesses? How many hours would it take for you to read the Bible in its entirety? If you read the Bible, if I got up here and started in Genesis 1 and read through uh, the end of Revelation, how many hours would you have to sit and listen to me read the Bible? I'll give you an answer. 70. That was surprising to me. 70 hours does seem like a long time. Uh, But when you put it in comparison to some of the TV shows that we've seen um, or not seen, it doesn't seem quite as uh, overwhelming. So if uh, if you are a Game of Thrones person and you saw all Game of Thrones, I want to say shame on you, um, you could have read the entire Bible through because it's about 70 hours as well. Unless we start making fun of the Game of Thrones crowd. Uh, the, The Friends and Office crowd, you're actually worse. Uh, You could have read through the Bible almost twice if you've seen it through. And I know a lot of you have seen friends more than twice. Um, But just so we're all on the same level playing field, I know if if you've watched every episode of uh, Little House on the Prairie, you're actually the worst. Because you could have read through the Bible three times in the amount of time that you spent watching Little House on the Prairie. Now what I, I, I'm, I'm joking, clearly. But what I want to say is that it might not seem as daunting. It looks like a big book, and it is. And some parts are hard and confusing. But my encouragement for you is you can do it. If you start now, invest a little bit, you'll be surprised how well you know the Bible after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Lastly, the last group, for those of you who um, would consider yourself Bible pros, you've tasted the Lord is good that he speaks and his word is sweet. My encouragement for you is never stop. Like you are an elephant and there is room for you to swim in that river. My encouragement for you might be to share your love of the scriptures with others. Let them see how much you love the word. So if your parents, let your kids see you reading your Bibles in the morning. Let them see you reading it at night. Talk about the word of God with your family. Let them know this is something that's important to you. Some of you might be teachers where you're able to help others to understand the scriptures. This psalm has been um, very um, uh, sweet to me this week. Uh, If you end up reading it, and my encouragement for you would be to read Psalm 119 this week, you'll find that it goes through a full range of emotions. And I feel like his prayer became 
my prayer this week. And so my encouragement is that if you know God has spoken in his word, but you're looking for more, ask God for it. Psalm 119 is a desperate plea to God to know the word, obey the word, and love the word. And so my encouragement for you is ask him, ask God, God, open my eyes to see the wonderful things in your word. Teach me your heart. Let me store it up so that I might not sin against you. Lead me on a path of joy marked by your word. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, I do trust that your word is living and active, believing that your Holy Spirit leads us, guides us to truth. Lord, for a, a church, we want to be marked as men and women of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us to understanding and guide us to obedience. Guide us to have hearts that love the fact that you have given us a word for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.